Welcome back to Murder Under the Midnight Sun. I'm glad to be back with you guys. I just spent a couple of wonderful weeks in the desert trying to make my body feel a little better and it was wonderful but of course the day I came back I got a cold and I apologize if my voice is a little bit more scratchy than usual but I really wanted to get this episode out to you guys. I also just recorded an hour and a half episode for my horror podcast, so that doesn't really help. Tonight's episode is going to be a little bit different than the usual. I'm going to be doing an overview of the year in crime in Alaska for 2018 with a focus on Anchorage because that's where I live and that's where a large amount of the notable cases took place. But there will be a few outliers to that. As I've previously mentioned, in 2016 and 17, in Anchorage, we broke the all-time homicide rate both years in a row. But we had slightly better news for 2018, as that number dropped quite significantly. In 2016, we had 34 homicides. In 2017, 37. But in 2018, that number went all the way down to 28. However, the average for the 10 years preceding 2016 was 17 per year, so we are still well above the average last year. But it is, of course, nice to see the number trend downward, and hopefully it will continue to do so. Of the 28 murders last year, only three were women, while four were under 21 and seven of these murders are still considered unsolved. However, we still have a long way to go for other crimes throughout Alaska. As of 2017, the rate of sexual assault is a disturbing 250% higher than the national average. The rate of violent assault is 131% higher. For car thefts in Anchorage, we had a shocking 3,100 in 2017, which is an average of over eight per day <laughs> in a city of 350,000 people. But as the last few months of 2018 were coming to a close, the numbers began to fall pretty quickly due to diligent policing and other factors. So it seems like while the crime issue may be slowly being dealt with, there are still many problems to be tackled in our community. Early in the year, a report came out listing the most dangerous states in America, and based on statistics up to 2016, Alaska was number one with 804 violent crimes per 100,000 people, followed by New Mexico, Nevada, Tennessee, and Louisiana. There are definitely still many issues lingering related to Senate Bill 91, which I have gone off about in the past, including pre-trial bail options that go beyond lenient. In one case, a man was arrested for violating parole in a felony case, and despite being ranked as the highest level of risk, he was bailed for $100 and murdered someone within a few weeks. In another case, a felon and repeat offender 
was released with no bail after being charged in assaulting his girlfriend. And so he immediately tracked her down and shot her, but thankfully she survived. So I just wanted to discuss some of the more bizarre or notable cases from 2018 because there were quite a few that I came across pretty recently that I guess slipped by me when they happened, but they are crazy and I felt like they needed to be talked about. So the first story from last year I'm going to mention is very emblematic of the types of murders that we have been seeing pretty often for the last couple of years. On December 9th, 19-year-old Davon Dodge and Daniel Bender Jr. were found dead inside of a truck parked in a West Anchorage neighborhood, both having died from gunshot wounds. It was our only double murder of the year, and it was basically an open and shut case because both the two victims were there as well as the two perpetrators. The two men had met in the truck to discuss the purchase of a gun, but for an unknown reason, an argument ensued, which led to the two men shooting each other and dying basically at the same time before emergency workers arrived. Devon had been in Anchorage for only about 48 hours after just having moved here from Fairbanks. It's a really sad case. Both were so young and lost their lives because of a stupid argument. And it seems like almost every week we see another case like this somewhere in Alaska where an argument between acquaintances leads to hot-blooded murder and all too often guns are involved. So many people, myself included, make stupid decisions when they're young and impetuous and it's so horribly tragic when these choices end up costing them their lives and of course affecting negatively the lives of those around them and their families. And it seems like a lot of these cases tend to involve young men, usually between 20 to 40. That seems way more common than any other peer group. The next case I wanted to discuss is probably the most terrifying of the year, and definitely sounds like it could have been the first murder of many if the perpetrator had not been caught. On February 28th, in a West Anchorage neighborhood, a family was at home minding their own business around 10.30 p.m. when one of them happened to glance out their window and witnessed their neighbor, 27-year-old Simon Waiuana, dragging a large object wrapped in a sheet towards his car. As they looked on, it quickly became apparent that he was moving a bloody human body. The wife quickly called 911 while her quick-thinking husband and son grabbed their guns and headed outside to make sure that the suspect couldn't drive away before police arrived. They held him at bay until the cops showed up just a few minutes later. They surveyed the scene. Waiwana's car was running with the rear hatchback open Inside was the body of a woman wrapped in a sheet. The postmortem would reveal that she had died from multiple stab wounds. The investigation revealed that the victim was 42-year-old Sherry Ingram, an Alaska Native woman and sex worker. It came to light that Waiuana 
had agreed to pay Ingram for sex, and for some reason the interaction had become incredibly violent, ending in Simon stabbing Sherry multiple times. Other sex workers came forward afterward, saying that they had seen him picking up girls on occasion, and one stated that she had previously been picked up by him and gone to that apartment. She said that he was weird, but never seemed violent. And it's still unknown what led to the murder, but it seems likely to me that Weyuana is just a piece of shit. The crime was horrifying, but sadly, it's just another, another in a long line of similar crimes against Alaska Native women and sex workers. I've mentioned this many times, and you might be sick of me talking from my soapbox, but I'm going to keep talking about it because it needs to be talked about. Alaska has an incredibly high rate of violence against women. It's three times the national average, and Alaska Native women are especially at risk. They are 10 to 12 times more likely to experience domestic violence and or physical assault than any other peer group in the United States. That is beyond sickening. Since 1990, 17 anchored sex workers have gone missing or been found murdered, most of which were Alaska Native, and most cases remain unsolved to this day. I previously have covered this in an episode, and I hope you give it a listen because I don't want these cases to just go cold forever. Sherry's case is in fact an outlier, actually. The fact that a perpetrator was caught and is going to trial for it. And it's probably only because that neighbor happened to catch a glimpse of him preparing to dispose of her body. If they hadn't seen him, it's possible or even probable that she would have just become another missing sex worker, another Alaska Native woman's name to be quickly forgotten. Sherry was originally from Dillingham. She'd had a troubled life and several run-ins with the law over the years. She'd also been the victim of domestic violence on many occasions, and at one point had filed a restraining order against a partner. But like everyone, she had friends and family that loved her, whose lives have been irrevocably altered by this horrible crime. Weyuana, on the other hand, appears to have no previous criminal record in Alaska. He's also Alaska Native and was previously from the village of Shishmaruth. His Facebook account is still up and lists him as a flight support agent at Northern Air Cargo and states that he's engaged, which I'm hoping is no longer accurate. The trial setting conference for this case is currently set for January 31st, so in just a couple days, and I will of course provide future updates to this case as the trial gets underway. Here's hoping that Sherry and those that love her get the justice that they deserve, which has eluded so many other women in the same situation. I just hope this piece of shit gets locked up for life, throw away the key. The next case I'm going to discuss sounds like a plot from a movie, it does not sound real. And it's also incredibly infuriating. On Sunday, October 14th, 35-year-old David Cargill 
was having a relaxing day with his mom and teenage sons. They were getting close to dinner time, and he ran out to the store saying he was going to go grab uh, an ingredient that they needed. That was the last time that his family saw him alive. His mother, Deborah, had a terrible feeling almost immediately after he left, and as time ticked by and he hadn't come back, she started to feel worse and worse. This was due in part to his troubled past and for other reasons, which I will go into in a second. Deborah had much reason to worry, but she would have to wait and wonder until the following Friday, October 19th, when law enforcement showed up at her door and informed her that David's body had been found at the Aklutna power station. He had died from two gunshot wounds in his upper body. The reason that she had become so worried so quickly was because for the previous couple of months, Cargill had been working with the Anchorage Police Department vice unit as a confidential informant. He had recorded himself making several purchases of a wide variety of drugs and illegal guns over a couple of month period. All of these purchases had been made at one auto body shop from the same two men every time, Marcus Aloe and Scotty Matea. His reasons for being a CI were twofold. He wanted to help rid the streets of drug dealers to make the city safer for his sons, and because he had struggled with his own drug addictions and struggles with opioids in the past for a long time. He was actually set to begin rehab just a few days after he disappeared. Police had put out a bolo on Cargill's 2008 Chevy Trailblazer, and a few days later, a resident in South Anchorage woke up in the early hours of the morning, looked out her window, and saw a vehicle completely engulfed in flames. Police responded quickly and realized that the vehicle was Cargill's, and it had been thoroughly burned out, destroying any possible evidence. The location in which it was set alight was a good 40 miles from where David's body had been found. Later, a disturbing chain of events was revealed. The men that Cargill had been buying from had just been charged for a variety of offenses, and when discovery had been delivered, the defendant's attorney had received recordings that immediately revealed exactly who the criminal informant was that had gotten them caught. Just a few days later, David was dead. This case highlights the inherent danger in becoming a CI, even if the CI themselves has not been made aware of just how far the protection from the police extends. Deborah later revealed to the press that David had never been notified that the discovery had been delivered and that the defendants now knew who he was. As they say, forewarned is forearmed, and without any warning, David was just a sitting duck. While the two men had been charged, one of them had actually posted bail, and at the time was free on the street. For some unknown reason, David had actually headed to that auto body shop 
that Sunday evening, unwittingly putting himself in harm's way. Witnesses later reported that they had seen David at the shop on October 14th, and within a couple of minutes, they had heard a yell and a gunshot. Law enforcement commented that CIs are always going to be at risk, but that they are protected to the furthest extent possible. But there's a fine line between risky living and unknowingly being a marked man. In November, both Matea and Aloe received multiple charges in connection with Cargill's death, including tampering with evidence and weapons charges. For some insane reason, they were offered a bail option of 100000 I have no fucking clue why, but I could not find whether either of them were able to post bail. The murder trial setting conference is currently scheduled for February 26th, and I will of course keep you updated. David's mom, Deborah, is still dealing with the tragic loss of her son, along with new stressors such as raising his children and the destruction of her vehicle, which was the trailblazer that she and David had shared. A GoFundMe has been set up for her to help out with those issues, and I will post a link to it in the show notes if you would like to help out a little. It's just such a horribly tragic case, and it's especially tragic because he was just on the cusp of turning his life around and trying to do something for the greater good, and it got him killed. The next case I wanted to mention is actually a mystery that is still unfolding, but it started back in March of 2018 when a barbecue restaurant, which is actually really close to my house, burned to the ground. Anchorage Fire Department determined that the fire had been intentionally set. Within just a few weeks, the owner of the restaurant, 61-year-old Chung Ho Kang, was reported missing by his family. No traction was made on his disappearance until the first week of January 2019, when a man walking his dog on an Anchorage trail discovered a human skull. Dental records just confirmed that it's the remains of the missing man, but so far have made no statements regarding cause of death. It will be interesting to see how this story unfolds because that chain of events is obviously very suspicious. The next two cases both involve Native Alaskan women, and they're just two more names to add to that long list. Murder is the third leading cause of death for both Native American women and Alaska Native women. And Alaska has the fourth highest rate of missing and murdered Native women and girls in the United States. And that is based on sheer numbers, not per capita. This next case is one that tragically remains unsolved. The story begins around 2.30 a.m., on October 28th, when law enforcement were called to an address in a Mountain View neighborhood with reports of shots being fired. When the responders arrived, they found two young women lying outside of a residential building. Both had been shot multiple times and were rushed to the hospital. 
Several days later, on November 3rd, 23-year-old Jenna Del Kitty passed away from injuries caused by multiple gunshot wounds. She died just a couple of weeks shy of what would have been her 24th birthday on November 25th. The other victim, who has not been identified, survived her wounds. Police stated that an unknown subject was seen shooting at the women from a dark-colored sedan and speeding off. He has yet to be identified, and there doesn't appear to be much traction in this case right now. Jenna's parents, Mark and Wanda, described their daughter as an extremely diligent and hardworking young woman. She had worked in a variety of jobs since she was 16 years old, many of which were in the hospitality and customer service industry, and she flourished with her large personality. Most recently, she had started working at the Turnigan Arm Barbecue Pit. She was known by everyone to be very spirited and energetic, and she had a great love of many of Alaska's favorite outdoor activities, such as camping and four-wheeling. She was also very intelligent and had maturity and wisdom beyond her years. She left behind a large extended family and countless friends and a loving boyfriend. She was a gorgeous young woman with a huge smile and her whole life ahead of her. Police have released scant details as the investigation is ongoing. The last case I will be discussing is going to be one of the worst ones I've ever discussed. It's the type of case I tend to avoid, but I think that it's an important one to talk about. And for a warning, it does involve the death of a child. So if you are especially sensitive to that, you may want to uh, push stop right now. No hard feelings. I'm going to try to get through it without getting too emotional because it's a rough one, guys. This story takes place in Kotzebue. Kotzebue is a small city of 3,200 people located 550 miles from Anchorage in the northwest Arctic region of Alaska. It's located so far west that it's only slightly less than 200 miles from Big Diomede Island which is the closest Russian island. The town has been occupied by the Inupiat people for several hundreds of years and was historically the trading hub for the region and in present day continues to be the largest community in the area, as well as being a shipping and transportation hub and providing a large amount of amenities to residents of smaller surrounding villages. It's one of the places in Alaska that has been most impacted by climate change in the last several years. And a couple of years ago, when we had a wonderful president named Obama, he came up to Alaska and he made a couple of stops, one of which was in Kotzebue. And he came up there to talk about climate change and how he wanted to work on doing things to try to stop it. So I don't know if that actually happened though, but it was really cool because he, you know, got to see traditional Inupiat dances and partake in them. So that was pretty darn cute. The original Inupiat name for the city is Kikatagrek, which means almost an island. 
But in the 1800s, some Germans explored the area and some German dude gave the place his last name of Kotzebue. It's on a small piece of land jutting into the Chukchi Sea and experiences extreme weather, including regular freezing temperatures throughout winter and high winds that can bring the wind chill factor down to a murderous negative 100 degrees Fahrenheit, which I can't even imagine that. As with many communities in Alaska that experience such cold weather and dark winters, Kotzebue and the rest of the Northwest Arctic region experience a variety of related issues, including alcohol abuse and depression. The Inupiat of that region actually have the highest suicide rate of all Alaska natives. Another factor is something that I haven't spoken about much previously, but it needs to be talked about more because for a long time it's been somewhat of an open secret in many villages and not really talked about. In many of the Alaska Native villages, there are extremely high rates of sexual abuse and assault, often against children. This is due to a variety of factors, including alcohol abuse, the insularity of the village, and often little to no policing. All right, hang on to your hats. The rate of child sexual assault for the state overall is six times the national average. That is painful. It's sobering and that's just based on cases that are actually reported. And when you're young and in an isolated village and your abuser is a relative that provides for you and your family, it can be just easier to stay quiet. And sadly, victims are often blamed if they tell on a family member or respected elder because they're, quote, ruining that person's reputation. It is extremely common, and I read a statistic that said something like four out of five Alaska Native women have experienced some form of sexual assault in their life, which just like hurts my heart. So this case we're talking about is the murder of Ashley Barr Johnson, and it's essentially the worst case scenario resulting from a combination of all of the aforementioned factors. On September 6, 10-year-old Ashley was last seen around 5.30 p.m. in Rainbow Park in Kotzebue. That same day, a woman known by the initials JJ and 41-year-old Peter Wilson were at JJ's mother's house. JJ later reported that Peter left for a couple of hours. The details were a little confusing. Everybody was drinking, but... He had ostensibly left to go pick up some children on behalf of JJ, but when he returned past seven, he was alone, and he had been traveling via four-wheeler. Later that evening, they were hanging out at JJ's house. Peter had gotten extremely drunk and was pretty much passed out. She kept hearing a cell phone ring, and she tracked it down to Wilson's jacket pocket. It was Ashley's cell phone. They could see by her name on the lock screen. JJ knew Ashley's family and called them. They told her that Ashley had been missing for hours. 
Her father came over to pick up the cell phone and hand it over to law enforcement. Wilson later stated that he had found it on the ground that evening. Four days later, the FBI got involved. Intensely, many agents came to town to join the investigation. They questioned Wilson, who stated that he had not gone anywhere on a four-wheeler on September 6th and that he did not know Ashley. He also stated that he did not know who the cell phone belonged to, despite the fact that her name was prominently visible on it. It was later revealed that Wilson and Ashley were actually related to each other and indeed did know each other quite well as he had visited her family home many times over the years. For eight long days, up to 100 people searched the tundra for Alaska. The landscape in that region is mostly tundra, which in the Arctic experiences permafrost and is mostly devoid of trees with just low-lying vegetation. On the 14th, the FBI used Ashley's cell phone records to search the area where her cell phone had pinged on the day of her disappearance. And that afternoon, they made a horrible discovery. They found her body lying in a shallow depression on the tundra about a quarter mile off of a road. She was partially concealed by some brush. They calculated that it would have taken her approximately 45 minutes to walk to the location of her body from where she was last seen. The location was also only accessible by four-wheeler or on foot and was close to a reservoir called Devil's Lake. The FBI were obviously looking closely at Wilson immediately. He had quite a bit of uh, previous run-ins with the law, and he had spent a couple of hundred days in jail over the years, mostly related to alcohol offenses. However, there had been rumors and innuendo about him for years and his possible interest in children. One resident said that she felt very uncomfortable when Wilson would hang out near her house and stare at her children as they played on the trampoline. She tried to keep them away from him as much as possible. After an extensive investigation, law enforcement slowly began to put together the pieces of what they believed led to the murder of Ashley. People that knew Wilson explained that he had been spending several months of that summer in a drinking binge and basically being a drifter staying at several different houses. Once Ashley's body had been found, police were able to collect surveillance footage, which fortunately was at the Devil's Lake Reservoir, and they found a chilling image of a man and a little girl on the four-wheeler around 6 p.m. The girl was wearing a pink sweatshirt, just like Ashley had been wearing when she was murdered. The video shows the two riding around the area for a little while until they disappeared out of sight. While Ashley's cell phone data had pinpointed her location, it also provided further information that the cell phone had been taken back to the town around 8 p.m. Ashley's curfew had been 8.30, and that was when her parents had begun to get worried. They had begun calling her cell phone and called it many times for the next couple of hours. And of course, it was during this time frame that Wilson showed up at JJ's house where he was staying, and she said that he had been acting extremely strange. He 
he wasn't talking to anyone and he was intoxicated to the point of no return. It was not much later until JJ made the discovery of the cell phone. When law enforcement had inspected the four-wheeler Wilson had been riding on, they did find a small amount of blood on the back of it. Though I could not find information on DNA results, so they might not be back. Once the autopsy had been complete, it was revealed that Ashley had been viciously sexually assaulted and then strangled and left half-naked on the cold tundra ground. DNA was found on her that was later matched to Wilson, sealing his fate. Law enforcement had originally charged Wilson with lying to the FBI regarding the details that he changed about Ashley that many people came forward and told law enforcement that they were lies. Within just a few weeks of Wilson being charged for that, a couple of brave women, mostly close relatives of his, came forward with their own stories of sexual abuse and physical assault at the hands of Wilson. These crimes had begun decades earlier. This predator had been getting away with horrific assaults on women for far too long because of isolation and fear. Finally, at the end of September, Wilson was charged with three counts of first-degree murder and four counts of sexual assault and charges of kidnapping and tampering with evidence. His bail was set at $3 million, and I tend to doubt that he was able to post that. I'm actually unsure as to why there are so many counts for each thing, but I'm sure that it will be revealed in the trial. His trial is currently set for March of 2019, and it will be taking place in Fairbanks. I'm guessing that was a request for a change of venue, likely due to everyone in Kotzebue having heard everything about the case, and likely because many of them were related to him, and probably it'd be hard to find an impartial jury there. This case really hurt my heart, and it shook the town of Kotzebue to its core. And Alaska as a whole was just somewhat broken over the news, and it was really hard to digest at first. This kind of crime against a child is very rare here. I honestly can't remember having heard about this kind of crime happening in like maybe 20 to 30 years. I'm sure there have been some here and there, but it's just not something that any of us Alaskans were prepared for. I have so much empathy for her parents. I can't imagine losing a child, much less in such a god-awful way. I tend to think if I was in that situation, um, the perpetrator wouldn't make it to trial because, you know, I'd have to go all Charles Bronson on them. So I'm sorry to end this episode on such a downer, and I must apologize for the uneven audio. I had to record this over the course of a couple of days because I kept losing my voice, as you might be able to tell. 
As usual, this episode was brought to you by my lovely patrons. Thank you guys. I love you all. If you would like to support the show, just click the link in the show notes. Patrons get a variety of perks, including bonus episodes, of which there are around four or five up right now. And I'll be putting another one up this week. And I send you goodies. I send you goodies when you sign up and goodies on holidays. Everyone just got some Christmas packages full of Alaskan Zillite, whatever that is. (laughs) And, you know, there is a holiday coming up that inspires the eating of a lot of candy. So you can look forward to some sweet stuff from me in the mail. If you'd like to do a one-time donation, there is a link for that in the show notes. Just click on PayPal. Everyone that donates $4 or more is going to get a sticker and a card from me. And you can choose what sticker you want. I'm in the process of designing some others. So that'll be up soon. Thanks, you guys. I love you. I'm working on a in-depth history thing. (laughs) So hopefully I will get that to you soon. Hopefully I will get my normal voice back and, you know, we'll see what happens. (laughs) 